Hello, this is Nick Parker, welcoming you to the X-Zone podcast and episode six of the Yellow King Blues. In this edition, we'll be opening file number 17 as the FBI and DEA Joint Task Force close in on the Sons of Twilight and the whereabouts of Vanetta Davis and the possibly inevitable return of Delta Green after that encounter with the mysterious sorceress gangster Stephen Alziz. After that report, we have a follow-up call with zoologist Dr Annie Campbell on an interesting development in connection with the work of paleontologist Dr Morris Whitney, whose discoveries related to the deep ones on the West Irish coast, whilst now lost, sounded very intriguing. That's all coming up, but now let's get underway with Special Agent Justin Hawkeye Pierce. It's Sunday, November the 29th, 2008, and the FBI team are working around the clock, aware that every day that passes, the chances of finding Vanetta Davis alive get smaller and smaller. They're also following leads in the case of Edward Cook, the death row inmate who they now believe is probably innocent and put there by Victor Steno. Let's hear more in file 17. This is Hawkeye, personal journal. Sunday, November 29th, 2008. It's 1600 hours in the lobby of the Los Angeles Hilton. So I'm writing this down on their notepaper as some Renica from Hotel Security is giving me the disapproving eye. I guess my 45 is visible by my side. I give him a easy smile, adjust my jacket, show him my badge. He's still not happy, though. He goes back to his floor patrol like he's Dick fucking Tracy. You know what? I don't have time for this bullshit. Doesn't anyone smile anymore? So what the heck am I doing here? Well, ask Brooks. No, not Tavon Brooks from the DEA. The other Brooks. Delta Green Brooks. The King of England. Last remnant of an arrogant empire and Delta Green's own resident sorcerer supreme. I think I'm going to call him Dr. D from now on, just to kind of piss him off. See, Mom, I did pay attention in history lessons sometimes. To be fair, that gangly limey did come up with some good ideas, without which we'd all be scratching our asses, and Devereaux's tail would be in the wind. Oh, well, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. So, people, let's review how we got here. Friday. Friday brought an ill wind from the southwest on Delta Airlines, as Devlin came in to bring us his own special brand of TLC. I had the option of playing dumb or going full-on smartass. And Ma, guess which route I chose. I swear the man that he popped a vein. And maybe, just maybe, Wilmot and I were close to being canned. But... This guy specializes in empty threats, and I think I've got his number. All he cares about is himself and being in control of any situation that might put him in a bad light. So once Frosted his, sated his need for some suitable ass covering, he was able to slip back into the swamp like a smiling gator he really is. While most of us would believe that what he had to say was marsh gas, one point does bear mentioning. John Edwards, Louisiana's assistant DA, and husband of Gloria, whose alleged murderer Edward Cook is, we now believe, wrongly waiting on death row, has been making inquiries about our inquiries. Devlin said he thought he was ready to spill 
which is, for him, you know, surprisingly helpful. Later in the day, we sat down with the L.A. Fed's Neverood's DEA team. They're still holding something back, and even Special Agent Anders from Los Angeles, whose personal plea still couldn't help shake their resolve. Hey, thanks for trying, dude. I think it's more, uh, what do they call it, territorial pissing. But for Christ's sake, I mean, how connected can Devlin be? Anyway, they'd had contact from CC in her undercover role as by Kamal Catherine DeVille, with a heads up that shit was going down on Sunday, with the Twilights planning a little surprise getaway for the afternoon. The DEA were all concerned that we might lose her, so a plan was hatched to get her a tracker in the form of a stud earring. Our plan went by the numbers. Summers handled the handoff perfectly. Earlier in the day, CC nearly caused a meltdown, making a call from a payphone to a Louisiana number, which we're guessing is Mike Hamlet's, although she only completed the first five digits before spotting that Twilight member Joe Harper had tailed her. Well, we can't be sure. Harper initially blew his top, but Catherine calmed him down, took him home, and whatever she did to restore that calm, it clearly worked. Uh, I don't want to think about that any further. Friday and Saturday night, we returned to stakeout, with the team observing trouble at the bar and grill from some local Hispanic gang, affiliates of Las Muertos. A face-off with the Twilight Bikers went badly for the Muertos, though. Although it did seem there were less Twilights on the ground than there had been a couple of days previously. But those Suns boys punched way above their weight, so note to self, if in doubt, shoot them. Twice. I didn't stay to see Saturday afternoon showdown as I had asked Acel for help with Sunday's bike ride event coverage. What I wanted was a method of being able to find Cecile if, as expected, she vanished off the map. Brooks's solution via Nick the Fix was as unorthodox as it was inspired, and it put me in a flight to Las Vegas in search for a friendly asset by the name of David Swan. Swan makes a living playing pro poker which, given he apparently has a modicum of psychic talent and abilities, sounds like uh, cheating for a living to me. Anyway, I made the mistake of knocking on the guy's apartment door in a swell desert community that was way beyond my pay grade. This meant I had a long wait in the blazing heat and a bleary-eyed contact. Swan was one of the former remote viewers employed by the Department of Defense for Project Stargate in the 90s. If I was a skeptic before, well, I've seen the light now. This guy delivered the goods, and then some. Basically, he was able to draw where CC was, which gave us a, all right, delayed view of the situation. Adam had connected me with an asset of the U.S. Geological Survey in D.C., who fed the data into their supercomputers, and bingo, we had a terrain image to try and identify and hopefully nail the location. So, Sunday rolls around, and the Twilight's gathered for Sunday service. Swan started sending drawings through every ten minutes, so we saw her inside the gang's clubhouse, which is apparently really a power conduit to some outer god called Yogg-Sothoth, known to Brooks and Frost, as it turns out. Frosty, I am beginning to worry about you. 
Yogg is apparently the cosplay of Popov, He Who Must Not Be Named, which is the uh, thing that's behind the mask of our king in yellow. So, 1300 hours rolled around, and Cain led his twilights in some sort of ceremony, and then they all vanished through the gate that we guessed they had been using to baffle and vex law enforcement surveillance. Swan delivered on his promises, and the G.O. boys now the location to be in Northern Death Valley National Park, a compound in the shadow of Tin Mountain, California. I had a heck of a time stopping the L.A. ASAC from pulling the operation once Cecile went off the wire, but I'm guessing Alphonse himself, top of A-cell, must have pulled some strings at director level in the DOJ, as he finally relented, and let us make our play, which brings us back to the Hilton lobby and the here and now. Gates. Yeah, two can play at that game. Brooks is going to make a gate using Swan's detailed drawing, which means we should be able to follow the Twilights right into their backyard. Surprise! Yeah, the situation from there gets a little more tricky, but there ain't no procedure or process for this crap. Swan's last drawing had the bikers heading off, armed for bear, so it looks as if our theory that Chandler has been taking Kane's men proves correct. I don't know whether Kane understands what he's up against, and that he may well just have swelled the ranks of Simon's army. Either way, neither of those boys are expecting us to get in the middle of it all. It's going to be a baptism of fire for Wilmot, and to a lesser degree Chief, who I now know has seen some of the charms of a Delta Green investigation before, and was previously classified as a friendly asset who could heal the broken minds of our fallen Greens. Well, big guy, it's time to come out of the back room and into the front line, because we need every shooter. I just got a text from Brooks. Gates ready in his suite. Time to saddle up for the hell ride. Okay, well, there you go. We'll find out what happened next in our next episode, which I guarantee you, you don't want to miss. Now, whilst we've been following these Yellow King investigations, it seems we seem to have kicked off our own investigation taking place in the here and now. It started with an email from Adrian, the anthropologist, after the so-called race of deep ones had been mentioned a couple of times in our files. Adrian, who's an anthropologist, contacted the Exome with details of his experiences on a field trip in the early 2000s, where he had met some islanders in the Indian Ocean, led by a former Cunard purser who seemed to worship the cult of Dagon and Hydra, which are the mythological parents we now know of the Deep Ones. I sent pictures of the tracks that Adrian had taken on a sacrificial rock that he witnessed being used to sacrifice a young female native, apparently to the Deep Ones, and by extension their god Dagon. I sent these prints to Dr Anne Campbell. She's a zoologist at the University of London, UCL, and initially um, the reaction was kind of interesting. She thought she was the uh, victim of a sick joke, as uh, her mentor and friend, the paleontologist Dr Morris Whitney, had sent her pictures of ancient tracks at a remote site on the west coast of Ireland just a couple of weeks before. Now, sadly, Dr Whitney was apparently the victim of a terrible accident and was washed away whilst apparently he was working on the rock face and probably drowned at the site. That's what the police were saying. Uh, 
However, before all this had happened, he had sent Dr. Campbell photographic evidence of almost identical track prints and a complete skeleton buried in the geological record that he was excavating. Um, it has to say the skeleton was kind of, um, kind of like a fish man, I suppose you would say. However, before the site could be preserved and you know, extra students brought in to do some work, uh, the site was vandalised. Um, and obviously uh, the finds were destroyed completely. Dr Campbell uh, went uh, about a week and a half ago back to Ireland to have a look for herself, but as far as we know, didn't find anything. Earlier today I managed to catch up with Annie for our first chat since her return. And she had some interesting news. So, hi, Annie. It's uh, good to speak with you at last. How are you? Oh, uh, I'm, I'm okay, Nick. Sort of. Oh, well, that doesn't sound too good. Is there is there anything I can do to help? Yeah. Yes, perhaps there is. Um, look, there's been a bit of a development. Has there? How so? Okay, so I went into my office at UCL for the first time in a while, this bloody lockdown business. Yeah, that's, it's just been awful, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It really has. Anyway, there was a package from Mo waiting for me there. Mo, as in Dr. Boris Whitney? Yes. Did he send you some fossils from the Irish dig? Or has something been saved? Um, it, not fossils. It's something else from the same general locale. I, uh, I need to get rid of it. It's really quite hideous, and I think it's giving me nightmares. I haven't had a proper night's sleep since it arrived. Oh, my God. Uh, well, okay. Um, well, look, how can I help? Would you be willing to come and get it? Uh, what exactly are we talking about here? It's a statue. Um, really squat, horrible, ugly statue. Uh, okay, how big are we talking about? Because space is kind of limited where I'm staying. Oh, it's it's small, about eight inches in height. Oh. Uh, the, the workmanship is really quite impressive, although, like I said, it's pretty monstrous looking. <laughs> Stuff of nightmares. Can you describe it? It's some kind of monster is the best I can do. It has a vaguely anthropoid look about it. So kind of like a human then? Sort of, yes, in the sense that it looks like it walks upright, but it's sitting down, uh, has a head like an octopus, uh, but its face is a mass of tentacle-like feelers. Uh, uh, its body looks scaly with a fleshy body that has a sort of rippling effect to it. It has prodigious claws on its hind and forefeet and um, long, narrow wings behind. Well, that definitely sounds pretty monstrous. Definitely ticks all the boxes. <laughs> oh, I can't explain it, Nick, but there's something loathsome about it. If you stare at it for too long, it looks like it's staring back at you. A bloated thing that squats evilly on its pedestal. It's, the pedestal is inscribed with some kind of characters in a language I've never seen before. You said it has wings? Yeah, the tips of the wings touch the back edge of the block whilst it sits at the centre. Uh, its long curved claws of these doubled up crouching hind legs grip the front edge and extend a quarter of the way down towards the bottom of the pedestal. 
its cephalopod head leans forward, uh, so the ends of these facial feelers brush the backs of these huge forepaws, which are clasping its crouching, elevated knees. It's... Ugh. It sounds pretty... Uh, sounds pretty remarkable, really. As, as you say, a sort of a nightmare vision. What's it made of? I really don't know. It's like a soapy greenish black stone with golden or iridescent flecks and striations. I've shown it in passing to a couple of colleagues from our geology and mineralogy departments, but they were all baffled. Same for the carved characters. Best guess is they are from a long dead language. Did Mo give you any clue at all? He said something about finding it in a cavern below the fossil site, but just said to keep it safe. It's clearly ancient, but strangely preserved. It's also weirdly pliant to the touch. It's like running our hand over a wet, porous rock. Well, I mean, it sounds really interesting, Annie. I mean, are you sure you don't want to keep it? I mean, after all, Mo sent it to you. Well, which makes it mine to do with what I want, right? So I'm giving it to you, or the Y zone, or whatever it was. It's the X zone. Ah, oh, sorry, excellent. <laughs> Whatever. I, I really just want it gone, OK? As soon as we can sort it. All right, all right, all right. Look, I've got a friend in London who can maybe look after it for me and then send it on. I'd be absolutely fascinated to see it. Oh, you're welcome to it, Nick, believe me. Yeah, there's just something wholly loathsome about it and frightfully suggestive of old, unhallowed cycles of life which our world and our ideas have no place. Please take it away. <laughs> so intriguing stuff, eh? Well, I can't wait to see this idol or whatever it is for myself, and I will share my own thoughts when it arrives and is in hand. I wonder if this might be the missing piece of information that Adrian mentioned in our discussion about there being something else greater the god beyond the gods, a pantheon leader that's above Dagon and Hydra. Well, if this is it, he does certainly sound pretty monstrous, all told. Well, right then. Well, look, thanks for listening. I look forward to sharing our next set of files on episode seven of the Yellow King Blues next time on the Exome.